We're back. Thank you this morning. I uh, just had a chance to visit with some of you and uh, just very encouraging uh, some things that you all had to say and what you heard. Uh, the most important thing I heard is that uh, many of you want to meet my wife. <laughs> and uh, so I talked to Claudia last night and I said, I wish you were here because uh, uh, it's really they're a great group. And, and this is really exciting what they're doing and what God is doing. Uh, so uh, hopefully we'll have another time. It just gives us another reason to come back up here at some other time. Uh, before we kind of move into what I want to talk about this morning, let me just ask, like I did yesterday, uh, is there anything you've heard from the Lord? Um, uh, we had some healing testimonies this morning, but is there anything else, just a word or a thought or an insight or, or uh, a revelation or a piece of scripture or something that you might have heard last night or at, during the talk last night or, or sleep or this morning? So just want to give you a chance to, to, if there's anything like we did last night, anything that you've heard or thought about, insight or even a question you might have. Anybody? That struck you? Yeah, it it did me too. It really did. It just because you know what? I was a sloppy Christian before that. Uh, I would have said I was a Christian, no doubt. I would have said I believed. I've like I told you, I've kind of always believed, but just sloppy. And then what that helped me do was I remember the next day uh, I was driving with one of the, my law partners, and I said, I said Jerry, I said this stuff is really just changing my life. Uh, Jerry grew up in the Baptist church and a very smart guy, and uh, uh, but he kind of had a, little, a bit of a cynical attitude towards everything. And I said, I just, I just know if there's three things right now that I want, I want to quit getting drunk anymore. Uh, I want to quit cussing for the most part, and um, and quit retelling dirty jokes because I forget the line, the the, the punchlines anyway. And uh, he looked at me and he said, uh, well, are you going to be any fun? <laughs> I said, I think so. I think I'll still be fun. But those things just began to kind of burn away. And um, uh, because it just uh, the integrity, that's the key word I keep get, getting, the dignity and the integrity that God gives us uh, as human beings to freely choose him. Uh, yeah, he calls and all that and he knows who's going to respond and I get all that. But still, there's also a freedom. Uh, that we have in a space, uh, what I call the space of grace. I'm going to talk more about that this, uh, in tonight's talk. Uh, but um, uh, just the integrity. So like a word like that, wherever you go goes the kingdom of God. It wasn't a bunch of finger pointing. It wasn't a bunch of rules to do this and don't do this. Because it went straight to the heart. Do you want to be, if you're part of this, if you say you're really part of this, um, then it affects everything you do. Wherever you go goes the kingdom of God. What else? Other thoughts, questions? Doesn't need to be. I'm just want to give you time. All right. Good. Yes. Yeah. Come fly with me. Good. I'm just telling you, this group right here. This is all the Holy Spirit needs. To bring revival to wherever you are. Right here uh, in this town, but also wherever you go back to. The Holy Spirit working in and through you can create new and powerful things. And you don't have to know it. You don't have to see it. You don't have to understand it. You just be. You know, there's two tracks to a railroad. There's, there's being and there's doing. 
And in the Western culture, we focus a lot, guess, on which one? The doing, right? But not the being. And so I talk a lot of all saints in Dallas about the being. we got lots of doers. I mean, they just do-do all over the place, right? Do-do-do. Um, but, uh, uh, and, you know, they write the checks. they got the big checks, the big hair, the big stuff, the big bucks. And, uh, but it's the being. It's being in God's presence. So that's become our mission statement at All Saints. Live, live in God's presence. Live out His love. Pretty simple. It's pretty obvious. Live in God's presence. Spend time with Him. Abide with Him. Love Him. Do you really love Him? Can you say in your prayer time, I, Philip Jones, in all the mess that I am, and all the confusion that I am, with all the mixed motivations I have, I love. What does love mean? I love you, God. If you'll say that in your prayer time and just relax and spend a few minutes meditating on the three words, I love you, and, and kind of draw them out, it brings you into his presence. It takes time. It's not something you do on your way to work. or I mean, you can, but it's better probably if you could just spend the time to do that. You're on a retreat. This is kind of part of what you're doing now. Then... You can also hear the words from the Lord, I, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I, God, delight in you. So my prayer, the second part of my prayer is, Lord, I know that you delight in Philip Jones. Now, I need to tell you something. That's hard for me to say because I know who I am. I know my brokenness. I know the mess that I am. I know my mixed motivations. So for me to say that about myself is so difficult. It's easy for me to say it about you because I don't know your mixed motivations. I assume you have them. I don't know what a mess you are, but I assume you have that. Nevertheless, it's easy for me to say, hey, God delights in you, Nick. God delights in you, Bob. God delights in you, Jenny. It's easy to say. But for me to say it about myself and put my name in there, it kind of shakes to the core the reality of God's grace. He really does. Because I certainly didn't earn it. I certainly don't deserve it. I certainly can't make it happen. But it's that space of grace that he prepares. So I encourage you to say in your prayer time. In fact, say it right now. Lord, I know you delight in and put in your name right now. Lord, I know you delight in. How did that feel? As deep as he knows us, he loves us. Think about that. This is pretty heavy thoughts here for a third of the morning. But as deep as he knows us, he loves us. That's so freeing. Because he knows us to the depths of our hearts. He knows things we don't know about ourselves. St. Augustine said this. God the Word is closer to us than we are to ourselves. This is all presence kind of stuff right now. God the Word is closer to us than we are to ourselves. And He is close and near to us when, 
especially when we're not close and near to ourselves. When we're acting out in anger or acting out in lust or acting out in greed or acting out in whatever it is. He's close to us. God the Word is closer to us than we are to ourselves. What does it say about God? This morning I was reading uh, my devotionals and just one word uh, uh, really struck me. And it's a word we all have heard a bunch. The word Redeemer. I don't know why, but the Lord just took that word Redeemer and just reminded me of the redemption that has been bought for me at a price. Nothing I earn and nothing I deserve. God the Word is closer to us than we are to ourselves. So when you think about that, it says a lot about God, of course. He knows everything about us. But it also says a lot about ourselves. So why am I not close to myself? What do I fear about knowing myself? What do I not want to be honest about myself? This is all presence. Live out God's presence. I mean, live in God's presence. This is all kind of part of that environment that God creates in his grace. The environment to be honest. The environment to be real. The environment to be transparent. Many of you came up uh, last night and this morning to say, you know, thank you for the transparency. Um, And it's just something that over the years has allowed me uh, to be that because other people have been that way with me. And it gives me such permission and freedom to be that way with him. Um, and so uh, it's what separates, I think, good, mature Christianity from superficial, inch deep Christianity. Um, a lot of churches are big into entertainment and, and big into the, all the pizzazz and the smoke and the lights. And, all that. and a lot of people brought the faith in that. I don't knock all that. It's just that this Anglican way is a bit different. Remember, the Anglican way is simply a way to respond in faith to God's revelation. Faith is always a response to revelation. Always. Somewhere along the way, God revealed himself to you through scripture, through other people, through worship, through prayer, through uh, events in your life. I don't know. uh, All kinds of ways. Faith is a response to that. And for me and for you and for the Anglican mission, our Anglican way is a way to respond to that in what we call the three streams that I talked about last night. The spirit, the scriptures, and the, and the sacramental way of life. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. But, but um, So that faith that you have is a response, and, and, and there's a way that we respond, and uh, in, primarily in, in our corporate worship. And as we gather together, and, and we do things in our corporate worship like Praise God. We confess. We get on our knees right there at the beginning of the service or at some point in the service and confess. Uh, and then obviously scripture and the creed and the prayers and then the Holy Communion, that really uh, mystical moment where we're together with God in his presence and, and when, when his body and blood become real to us. All that is to say is that um, uh, there, there's um, so much value in the historical one holy and Catholic apostolic church, and you all are part of that in the way that you express yourself through the Holy Spirit, in the way that we express ourselves in reading God's Word, in the way that we express ourselves in worship. And there's a lot of varieties of ways to worship. 
I've never said and would never say the Anglican way is the only way. It's just a way. There's lots of other ways to do it. And there's lots of ways to do it within Anglicanism. You may have a different way of worshiping here than we do in Dallas or that they do in in uh, um, in, in White Rock or in Vancouver or whatever. That, that's all f- the freedom to do those kinds of things. But anyway, the, so uh, that live, live in God's presence, live out his love. Anybody else have an insight, thought, question, whatever that... Um, Okay. All right. If you uh, in your uh, this morning, I am going to get and talk a, a bit about the mission. But I want to begin with uh, in Bob, open up to Luke chapter nine, and uh, <clears throat> this is a passage that uh, um, uh, that I want to just. I'm not going to go great depth into it, but it's just a passage that is a reminder of God's call on Jesus, God's call on us, and our response. And uh, some of the varieties of the way that we respond. Last night I shared with you that that uh, uh, being saved in the sense of putting my faith in Christ. And then it was a long time before that surrender took place. It's still taking place. You don't just surrender one time. We keep surrendering. That's part of the spiritual Godly life. And, um, and still surrendering and surrendering and surrendering. And then... Uh, the sense of being sent. Um, here again, you don't have to be ordained. You don't have to be in full-time ministry to be sent. You all have been sent in whatever environment you are to do whatever you do. But we are sent people. We are sent people because God is a sending God. He is a missionary God. He is always sending out. And in the parables we're going to look at this evening, uh, three different parables in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see that God is always sending. He's doing all the action. He's doing all the work. We get to join in that. We get to join in his redemptive work around the world. We partner with God in bringing about his redemption in the world wherever you are. This deal about, you know, wherever you go goes to the kingdom of God. I remember that when I go out to eat and the waitress comes up and I'll ask her or him, uh, is there something I can pray for you about? Do you ever do that? It's, it's, it's fun because you never know what you're going to get, right? And sometimes they just kind of blow you off. Or other times they think about it and say, well, you know, yeah, I had this or that or whatever. Don't know if they're Christian. Don't know anything about that. But just to bless them. If we were just people blessing other people uh, out, and, and think about it outside the walls of the church and just in your everyday deal and just stop and just pray for people. And don't do this. Don't say, hey, I'll pray for you. Stop right there at the moment and pray for them if you can. Whether it's uh, uh, the register behind the desk, you know, or the one checking, giving you hamburgers at the, at the restaurant or, or the whatever it is. But just think about those opportunities to bless other people. And you don't have to drag them and bring them into church and put them in hard pews that are hard to sit in before they can be blessed. Let them be blessed where they are right there. And I don't say to them, oh, by the way, I'm the pastor of all saints. I don't even say that. I just bless them freely, without conditions, without strings. Because that's how God blesses us. I encourage you to do that in your daily life. It, it, listen, we have the freedom in this culture to do it. You're not in jail for being a Christian yet. And so while you're out there, you might as well uh, have the chance to do these kinds of things. There's a, a Catholic bishop or archbishop or something, uh, who, uh, or cardinal or something in the United States, who said that, you know, uh, he sees kind of where the culture is going. Uh, and kind of in a dire prediction, he says, I'll, I'll die in my bed. This is a recent quote. My successor, when he dies, which will be, what, 20, 30 years from now, he'll die probably in jail. And his successor will probably die in the public square, the way things are going. Okay. 
Maybe that's the way things are going. We don't know. The point is, right now we have freedom to express our religion and our faith. And it doesn't matter what the government says you can or can't do in public spaces. It doesn't matter. You have all the opportunity to do this all around you all day long. To be sent people, to be missionary people. Uh, and, and that's a value for us that we want to capture and hold and, and, uh, uh, and maintain. Okay, in Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 51, uh, it says this, When the days drew near for him, meaning Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is a turning point in the scriptures. This is a turning point in the gospel of Luke. It's a turning point in the life of Jesus. Now, you know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels. And they don't give every detail of everything about Jesus' life. Uh, they give, they kind of have some common material that they work from. And they add or subtract some and, in the only way they're doing it because they're writing to, to their particular audience. But there is a, 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 um, a theology of geography that takes place because basically most of his ministry in Matthew, Mark, and Luke takes place up in the north in, in the Sea of Galilee area. And then, uh, and then it kind of moves down towards Jerusalem. So he really only goes to Jerusalem maybe once in the Synoptic Gospels. We know he went to Jerusalem many more times than that. But they're not trying to write a modern-day biography like we would write it. Uh, They're trying to make a theological and a spiritual and a a historical point about the living reality of this Jesus Christ. And here are the things that that God has has inspired us to put down, little did they know, for the next 2,000 years for people to read and to understand who Jesus is. And in this particular passage, Jesus is now turning toward Jerusalem. And when he turns toward Jerusalem, that means he's moving from the north to the south. He's moving from Galilee through Samaria down into Judea where Jerusalem is. And that means he is going not just to Jerusalem, but he's also going to the cross. He knows where his life is going. He knows where it is headed. He knows why it has to happen. He knows why the cross is his destiny. And he freely embraces it. Each bloody, hard, disgusting step of the way that he has to go through, he goes through because it's his own choice to do it. He does it freely. It says in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I can lay it up or I can put it down. In other words, he knows exactly where he's going and what he is doing. He knows who he is and he knows his destiny. He's going to the cross. And always the cross, you know, the search for spirituality uh, it has all of its kind of vagueness until you realize that the search for spirituality ends with the person who's hanging on a cross. Because right there, that is the pivotal point of all of human history. And we can talk spiritual language and we can talk spiritual this and spiritual that. And say, why is that guy hanging on the cross? Why did he have to go to the cross? What is it about our human nature that put him on the cross? And so he's going each step of the way, free to embrace the cross for you and for me and for the whole world to show us God's, the depth of God's love. We are worse off than we can ever imagine. For needing the Son of God to go to the cross. He was not crucified because he was a nice guy. He was crucified because he was a blasphemer. Claiming to be God. Why did God have to go to the cross? We, we, we underestimate the reality and the death of our sin. 
And we underestimate the incredible love of God to go to the cross for it. That's where he's headed. Now, see, this is something so pivotal for us in our missionary zeal and work. Uh, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Samaria. You know, that's that in-between land, the kind of a bunch of half-breeds uh, that, were, that were there. Uh, they're the people that the Jews kind of just went around and literally didn't walk around. They didn't walk through Samaria. They walked around Samaria because uh, they had been taken off actually in the Syrian um, um, exile in 722 B.C. and all these lost tribes. And so they had a mixed language. They weren't Jews. They were they were uh, kind of Jewish in some ways, kind of not in some other ways. But nevertheless, they were they were mixed breed people. So they didn't like going through Samaria. But that's where he's going through because he's Jesus and he's breaking all these kind of boundaries. Uh, verse 53. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, why? That seems kind of odd. How did they know he was going to Jerusalem? How did they know what was going to happen in Jerusalem? Why did they not receive him in Samaria? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. I don't really know. You may have an answer. There's not one given here. But we can take kind of the general understanding of human nature. This is written, of course, you know, 30 years after uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. And so there's a kind of a looking back by Luke and an inspired thought by Luke. Uh, these people... They didn't accept him because they knew where he was going and it was a puzzle to them or it was a scandal to them. Have you ever heard of the scandal of particularity? The fact that the son of God came in a particular time, in a particular place, born into a particular woman, into a particular household, uh, in, in a particular season of life right there where we had the situation with Samaria. Who knows? They wouldn't accept it because they knew he was going to Jerusalem. Why do we need the Son of God to die for? It's the same question that people, secularists ask today and atheists and agnostics ask today. Why do we need that? Look, we're doing okay. We're doing fine. So nothing's changed. It's the same kind of human nature over 2,000 years. Um, Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That sounds like a great idea. They're against us. Let's just zap them. You can do it. Come on. And, of course, Jesus will have none of that. But Jesus himself, skip over to chapter 12. Go to chapter 12, verse 49. Freedom and mission. This is all about freedom and mission. Verse 49, chapter 12. I came, Jesus says, to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He will take the fire that James and John said should come down upon these unbelieving Samaritans. He will take the fire himself. He will be baptized with that fire at the cross. So that the only fire that you and I have to contend with or receive is the fire of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You see how it connects. This fire, this zapping. He says, you don't know what you're asking. We're not going to do that. In fact, there's a fire I'm going to be kindled with. And that fire is the fire of the cross. So that the fire that you can have is the fire of the Holy Spirit. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, Foxes have hoes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This, this first response of this, the responses here are just so comical almost. I will follow you wherever you go. I love the idea of being about a cause of something greater than me. Let's do it! Well, okay, but I have nowhere to lay my head, so you won't either. This is what you really want. He kind of brings it down to earth and brings it down to reality. To follow Jesus in mission, to follow Jesus freely in mission, means that we're not in charge anymore. And he's going to take you wherever he's going to take you. I gave you my story last night. I grew up in the same house on the same street that my mom and dad lived in for 54 years. Claudia's father just died in May. They lived, uh, her parents lived in that same house for 62 years. For us to follow Jesus, though, we've had, I don't know, 25 different addresses. And all those different cities, none of which you probably even heard of except Dallas. But anyway, uh, so, okay, it's really, I'm not really in charge. Lay or ordained. It sounds like a great idea to follow you, Lord. And then he just kind of brings things down to reality. Um, to another, he said, hey, you, follow me. And notice what he says, follow me. He's drawing, always drawing people to him. Jesus does not draw people to his teaching. He doesn't draw people to his philosophy. He doesn't draw people to the temple. He draws people to him because he is the one in whom we find forgiveness of sins. He is the one in whom we find reconciliation. He is the one in whom we find life and peace and joy. He is the one that we live in that presence, live in God's presence through and in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Follow me. Come. Can you hear that word right now? Follow me. Jesus, right now, I just want to stop and pray. And I want to pray, Lord, for to hear those words, each one of us, and just reflect on it for a few moments. Hear the word. Follow me. Close your eyes and pray. Seek. Listen. Follow me. Follow me. I told you yesterday that the kingdom of God is not a place. It's an intimacy and a similarity. An intimacy in a relationship with God and a similarity in that our lives begin to look like his life. Follow me is the only way that can happen. In all of our fallenness, he continues to show us that grace upon grace upon grace. His Holy Spirit will transform. Follow me. Uh, verse 60. And Jesus said to him, uh, leave the dead and, and go bury, uh, leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Let me take care of business first because they're going to be a little upset that I'm not at home with them right now. And besides, you know, I need their approval. And besides, I'll probably also need some inheritance. And besides that, I'll probably have some business deals to take care of. And besides, follow me. Let it go. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Do we look back? 
Are we fit for the kingdom of God? It's real clear the kind of character and the kind of attitude and the kind of position that we're called to have. I love that vision of a plow. I've never plowed. But, but, but I've seen plowed land. I've seen people with the tractors and all that kind of stuff. And I've mowed a lot. I love mowing yards. You know why I love to mow yards? My yard particularly. is <laughs> because the grass was high and now it's low. And I did it. And it didn't take much time. It's quick results. I never see that in my life in the ministry. You don't see quick results. That's why I like to do those kinds of things. So I get some sense of it. But you've got to look straight ahead. Or do I look back? All right, I was a lawyer for seven years. Do I look back and ever calculate what maybe my income might have been by now? Well, a little bit, but not very much. <laughs> Just in certain moments in my life. Because I've seen God provide over and over and over again. I really have. And I'm just so blessed to be in His presence. I really feel it. I feel that anointing. I'm not special. There's nothing unique about me and all that. But but I would rather have, as I told my board the other day, I would rather have God's anointing than all the answers. I'd rather be in a place where only things are going to happen if God shows up. And that's that's why you're here. So, this passage says so much about God. It says so much about the human nature. It says so much about mission. I want to talk to you for a few moments now about what we call the AMA, or I just call it the mission, the Anglican Mission in America. I want to kind of give you some background about it, um, and then uh, to kind of, you know, just walk us through the years, uh, its values, its what it's about. And then um, some of it you may have heard, some of you may not have heard. And then stop and have some time to answer questions you may have. Because it's absolutely something, new, a new movement that took place back in uh, or about 2000 uh, that uh, is really unparalleled. It has changed the face of Anglicanism in North America for the next two generations. It really has. And you may say, well, who cares about Anglicanism? What about Christianity? Well, this, here again, there, there's a historical connection of Anglicanism down through the centuries, and it's just our way of expressing. It's not the only way. I never said that. You know, you've got all other kinds of ways to express your, your, your response to God's revelation through faith. But this is a, a practiced way that has deep, rich history and has deep, rich uh, meaning for our lives right now. It has changed the face of Anglicanism in North America for the, for the next two, two generations. I'm convinced of that. You already see it. Uh, every 500 years, Phyllis Tickle says to us, Phyllis Tickle is an author, uh, that, that has written this book that talks about every, every 500 years, there's a, there's a radical change in the way church is done. In, in the year 500, even the monastic movement, um, uh, in the, in the year 1000, it was a break between the East and the West, and, and then in 1500, it was a Reformation, and in 2000, uh, I told you about the Holy Spirit. I told you about in the 20th century what God did. And I said in the beginning in 2000, not that I'm some prophet, but I said, listen, denominational walls are breaking down all over the place. And now people are coming together uh, less about denominations and more about affinity in style of worship. And you find more evangelicals now adopting some of the practices of the Anglican uh, roots and riches and tradition. Uh, and then what we found in my life in the Episcopal Church, uh, when I was in the Episcopal Church, where the beauty of, of God's Word expressed in the evangelical camp and also the beauty of the Holy Spirit expressed in the charismatic camp and putting all that together with this liturgical camp or whatever you want to call it. 
It brings about a freshness and all this kind of thing. Every 500 years, things are breaking down and all that kind of stuff. So, in, um, um, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, just like many of you grew up in the Anglican Church of Canada. How many of you grew up in the Anglican Church of Canada? Okay, all right. So, I grew up in, in a similar type of body in the United States. And, um, and then uh, I wasn't too privy to all the issues. You know, I kind of knew some of them, but not all of them. And then when I was called into the ministry, going to seminary in 1986... Uh, that's when you kind of began to kind of see more of what was happening, what was taking place. And some great riches of the past in the Episcopal Church, um, which started after the American Revolution. And uh, just like the great riches in the past of the Anglican Church of Canada. And so I'm, I'm not meant to disparage anything about what God has used it through over the past 200 years. Uh, and is still using it in some ways, maybe today. But there was clearly in the Episcopal Church a crisis of leadership and a crisis of faith. Right here, the Word of God, uh, it was being uh, interpreted in ways that were very inconsistent with 2,000 years of uh, basic Christian understanding and tradition of what the Word means. Like, did the resurrection really happen? Maybe it was just a visionary experience. Was Jesus really born to the Virgin Mary? Why was that? Uh, did Jesus, was he really the Son of God? I mean, clearly he was a great teacher, a great moral example, but it, was he really the Son of God? And what's this stuff about sin? Let's kind of, you know, color the edges on that kind of thing and, and let's make it more tolerable because then more people will find themselves. Meanwhile, the church has died and died and died in all the mainline denominations in the United States and I'm um, sure in Canada as well. So there was a crisis of faith and a crisis of leadership. So people like uh, Chuck Murphy and people like uh, uh, other people that were part of the Episcopal Church, well, let, let's find ways to kind of change within the structure, right? You've heard that, right? Let's get the right people elected into these different positions. And it was way too late. It wasn't going to happen. And it took more than just maybe five or ten years of work because there had been about 50 years, maybe to 70 years of, of well, I'll use a good old Texas uh, slang, piss poor teaching in the seminaries uh, that, uh, uh, you know, they weren't teaching the word of God. They weren't teaching anything that affected the heart. They weren't talking about transformation. They kept talking about the big social issues. And we can just let's just, you know, change things by by doing better. But you don't do better unless you're you're being as part of this life. And so that wasn't good. And, and who is Jesus? The historical reality of Jesus was all up for grabs and and all these kinds of things. Now, now, all that is to say is that's the way things that's the way things were for a long time. And then Chuck Murphy uh, and John Rogers were consecrated bishops. They didn't want to be, but there was just this kind of movement at this special time by Archbishop Moses Tay and Archbishop uh, Emmanuel Colini from Rwanda, Tay from Southeast Asia. And then, of course, uh, Archbishop Young Paulo Tay after that. But, but they were consecrated bishops. They were consecrated bishops to do this. To go and to plant churches in America and become a mission in America so that there are lots of reasons for this. A, number one, there was at least 140 million in the United States, and I don't know how many uh, in Canada, but let's say 15, 20 million, I don't know. Let's say 160 million unchurched people in North America, right? So let's plant churches that reach the unchurched people right here in our own backyard. It's great to have missionaries overseas, and we love that, we support that, and do all that. But our mission is to the Americas in North America. Because those are the people that we know, and those are the people that we can relate to, and, and all that. The culture is just going way down. And clearly studies show that church planting is the most successful way to reach the unchurched. Tim Keller, I don't know if you ever heard of him. Tim Keller is a, a Presbyterian pastor in New York City, planted a church called Redeemer. 
And he says, I think he's right, he says that um, if you had a hundred parachurch organizations and a hundred revivals and a hundred new healthy church plants, those church plants would reach more people for Jesus Christ in discipleship and growing them up in Christ than the other two. The other two you need, it's not that you don't need them, it's that the church plants give people an opportunity to quickly get involved and be part of something and grow in their faith and, 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 and be um, transformed by their faith. And then they're the people, because they were unchurched or underchurched, we reach a lot of underchurched people, we reach a lot of overchurched people. They have been all, they've been churched to death. Program after program after program, and they're wiped out. And, and wherever I've been, for some reason, this has been kind of a ministry to what I call the overchurched. And when I tell them, hey, come back in, and the liturgical thing's kind of new for them, or the Holy Spirit thing's kind of new through them, or something, come back in, and I just want you to feed in the pasture for one year. I don't tell this to everybody, but, but these overchurched people don't do anything. If I ask you to do something, say no. For one year. And just fall back in love with Jesus. Nevertheless, here we are. We had this opportunity. So it got started. And it got going in the year 2000. And, uh, and then moved on from there. And uh, uh, the focus was to bring the reality of the living word, Jesus Christ, into people's lives. And to bring people into faith. And to grow them up in the faith. And uh, not to be a refuge. You see, the, the mission could have easily been a refuge. And it was for some people. But it could easily have just set itself up for those people who want to leave the Episcopal Church because of its leadership and lack of faith and lack of leadership will come on into the mission. But Chuck refused to do that. And he had really good counsel from his archbishops and, and from uh, other people. He was saying, look, you've you got to have something about moving forward. Church planting is it. It's not the only way to bring people to Christ. I'm not saying that. It's just a way, and it's an effective way. And it takes lots of resources. It takes lots of guts. It takes lots of pioneer spirit type of people. It takes lots of people who are willing to be on the edge and willing to fail. You've got to be willing to fail if you're going to plant a church, because you just never know for sure if it's going to go, right? And uh, But you've got to be willing to lose your job in order to keep your job. It's just a, that's a principle of the kingdom. If you want to keep something in the kingdom of God, you've got to give it away. To keep something, you've got to give it away. Grace, money, stewardship, you've got to give it away. So they began to do this. And, and, and the, 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 the funny thing about this is Chuck was the senior pastor of a church in a place called Pauly's Island, South Carolina. Anybody ever been there? You've been there, Ed. A couple of Silas, you had to go. Michelle, you had to go. But the rest of you, you don't even Pauly's Island. How do you spell it? Uh, anyway, it's, it's out there in South Carolina, a little old small town. It had like two lights when he got there. He'd been the rector of this parish out there, built this great parish and all that. That's where the kind of the headquarters of the Anglican Commission, that's where it was, and it began to take off. And, and uh, the people began to come in from the Episcopal Church and people from, from you know, non-denominational churches kind of getting interested in the whole Anglican way of doing things. And so and out there kind of trying to, Chuck had never planted a church. He didn't know anything about it. Um, and when I joined, I'd never planted a church. Uh, but that was kind of the rallying cry behind the whole thing. And so the idea was to have a, have, have a, a movement uh, that was less top-heavy, a movement that was less about bureaucracy, and a movement that was more about the heart and the spirit, and a movement that was just willing to go out there and be, be more like a vine than a potted plant. You know, what a potted plant is, something that looks nice and beautiful like a lot of the churches in, in our country and in your country. 
Not much goes on there, but there's a nice pot of plant. I'd rather be a vine. It's kind of going through the culture. It's kind of going through the arts and the politics and going through uh, uh, music and going through um, uh, schools and public schools and private schools and, and, just, and just out there. And it's kind of a Celtic way of doing things. Anyway, so, uh, so that, and then it began to really grow and just kind of kept growing and kept growing. There were 50 churches, then there were 75 churches, then there were 100 churches, and a lot of more church plants, a lot of more transfer churches coming in with the DNA of, of coming from the Episcopal Church, and who liked that idea of a province, who liked that idea of a jurisdictional model, who liked the idea of a diocese and all that, uh, but couldn't stomach the Episcopal Church anymore. Lots of people gave up their property, lost their property that they paid for all those years, and uh, came in and said, you know, it's worth it. It takes that kind of spirit to be part of something uh, like a missionary movement. It takes the kind of spirit to be willing to lose your life, your property, and your friends. Really, it takes that kind of. The other day, uh, two weeks ago, there's a guy at our church named the Vicar of Baghdad, Andrew White. Anybody heard of him? The Vicar of Baghdad, he was at our church in Dallas and talking about uh, his ministry in, in Baghdad and and what's happened over there, just the atrocity that's taken place. He's been there for 15 years. And uh, uh, if he had his way 15 years ago, he would be still in a church somewhere in London, you know, meeting his friends at the pub or whatever. And uh, But God kind of pulled him out and put him into Baghdad. And, and he's been there through all the stuff that poor Iraq's gone through over the past 15 years. Uh, but that's what missionaries do. And that's what church planters do. And that's what people who are out on the edge do. We have a missionary God who sends, and we're part of that sent people. So the Anglican Mission kept growing and, and add more bishops, and, and uh, there were some mistakes made along the way, I think. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it, it was up to like 200, 250 churches. And then, uh, uh, and then some things happened along the way. But before I get into that, there was that sense of, of freedom within fences. Chuck used to say this all the time. Remember that, Silas? Freedom within fences. And you can hardly ever see the fence. And that means go for it. Just do things. You don't need permission. Just, just, you want to go to plant a church over here? Go plant a church over there. You're not in the Episcopal Church anymore where you have to get the bishop permission and some standing committee and some liberal people and who are never going to give you permission anyway. You don't have to do that. In fact, the church in Little Rock, Arkansas, now Little Rock is the capital of Arkansas. Arkansas is a state in the United States, okay? It's right next to Texas, which is a bigger state in the United States, right? And, uh, and, and so there was this group of people in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, really, it was the first church in the Anglican Mission, so to speak. Uh, and they wanted to plant a church within the Episcopal Church, but they wanted to be evangelical, and they were going to pay for it and give their, their money to the, to the diocese. And the bishop said, well, we just don't have a place for that. And so he kind of gave them the right hand of fellowship, and they, they went out, and they, they kind of licked their wounds for a while. And then over time, decided, let's plant, let's just... Let's start something new. But we wanted to be Anglican. We like the Anglican way of doing things. We like Holy Communion. We like the liturgy. Uh, but we also love God and love Christ and love His Word and love the Holy Spirit. And so they just began to meet and kind of call people. I was one of them. They had come just to do a, a visitation and just, just do communion with them. And, uh, and so it's just it's, it's that kind of spirit, that entrepreneurial spirit. Freedom within fences, but you can hardly see the fences. This is totally foreign to my background. My background, everything was like this, and everything was like this, cookie-cutter kind of stuff, and, and you couldn't go outside the box, and I just kind of... And so when I moved from, Little, from El Paso to Little Rock, all of a sudden when we were meeting with other clergy or having some other kind of big gathering like winter conference, there were no more 
resolutions to have to vote on. We resolve that Jesus is Lord. I mean, that wouldn't even pass in the Episcopal Church. There were no more politics. Well, there's always some politics, but there was no more like having to vote on things and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, and everybody was in agreement about the scriptures and agreement about what, what the Bible meant and about what, what God was doing, all that kind of thing. And instead of all that voting and politicking and everything, we had Bible study and worship and prayer and, and great speakers and, and talk about uh, apostolic works and, and, and mission and, and all those kinds of things. I mean, it was just exciting to go to Winter Conference. Great speakers every time. So it was like open field running, but I'd been closed up for so long, I, it, it took me a while to kind of... But it challenged me, actually. i got to tell you this. It challenged my thinking... Uh, it was one thing to kind of be a little bit of a rebel within the system because I was orthodox and spirit-filled and all that. But then when the system was gone, then all of a sudden there was nothing to bounce it up against. And so I could take a few more steps out there than I thought I could take. And then I watched other people, steps that they were taking. I could take a few more steps this way and I could see these entrepreneurial kind of things that people were doing. Maybe we need to do that or think about that and pray over that, whatever. Like, So off it goes. And uh, then it's growing and growing and growing, and, and I'm loving every minute of it. Every single minute of it. Archbishop Young, I want to thank you and Julie for your leadership over all those years. Really, would you just give them, honor them in this way? Um, incredible leadership, incredible witness. Thank you so much. Um, and, of course, your own Bishop Silas up here, just terrific, and, and Michelle and his family. You got to know all of them. And then uh, over over time, some things began to happen, and and uh, there were some people that really wanted more of a jurisdictional model. That's what they wanted from the beginning. So the mission was was glad to help support that, and encourage that, and give money to it, which we did. So that ACNA got up and started. ACNA is more of a jurisdictional model. What I mean by that, it's like the Episcopal Church, but but uh, more of an orthodox expression of that. So it's it's the it's the same engine. It's the same car, so it's a bit of a different color. And, and that's good and all that. What we like being is a missionary society. A society of mission and apostolic works, or SOMAW, S-O-M-A-W. Society of mission and apostolic works. To recognize, to raise up leader, leaders that, 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 can, uh, uh, that can be part of this movement, pioneer type leaders, church plant type, type people. And so what we have kind of in our DNA now is um, are three things. Number one is frontline freedom. We still love that frontline freedom. You're here. John's the pastor of many of you here in this church. You have the freedom to, to do what you do here, to buy a high school. But you didn't need permission to buy a high school building. We don't hold the property in our name. It's all in your name. And you can go start another church somewhere else and have two churches here if you want or other apostolic works. Frontline freedom. Those are the kind of people we're drawing or people that, that have that kind of entrepreneurial spirit. There's not a lot of bureaucracy. There's not a lot of bishops overlooking what you're doing or a lot of committees you have to go through and all that. Now, there is an assessment. If you think you're a church planter, well, then, you know, we, we take you through an assessment process because a lot it, it's become a faddish thing to be a church planter. Not everybody really is a church planter. Uh, and so, uh, but frontline freedom. Then the second thing is there are minimal structures. Yes, we have bishops. And yes, we have accountability, and, and yes, we have winter conference, we have clergy retreat every year, winter conference every other year, all those kinds of things. Uh, but that's just to kind of, you know, keep everybody encouraged, keep everybody challenged, and then we have spiritual authority. 
If you want your pastor wants to have be under a bishop, a, a spiritual authority, that's great. They pick the bishop. It's all affinity based. And so it's, of course, in Canada, it makes more sense to, to be with Silas. But if uh, if John thought I really wanted Chuck to be my spiritual authority, he could have a relationship with Chuck and just do that. A lot of freedom with that. But still, there's a structure. We still had the bishops and priests and deacons and 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 the churches and all those kinds of things. So there is a structure. You're not alone by yourself. Frontline freedom, discipline structures, and spiritual authority and oversight. Uh, so over the years, kind of things began to happen, and some people really wanted that more provincial model, and they left to join what became ACNA. And uh, uh, and so and then there were some there were some hard things. The Archbishop of Rwanda. Uh, the retired archbishop is a guy named Emmanuel Collini, and just a terrific man, just a lion of a man, a great man of God. And uh, his successor um, was a great man, uh, but was kind of getting pulled by some people on his uh, house of bishops in Rwanda. And uh, they wanted to change the way the things that we had worked on in the past. And Collini is the one that actually said, Chuck, I think you need to get out of Rwanda. Things are different now. And uh, I won't go into all that because uh, it's just it's a it's a it's a sad story uh, on both sides. But at the end of the day, we had to break a relationship with Rwanda. And uh, and then we now have over the past five years, Kevin Donlan has established what we call concordats or relationships with about 10 different bishops in Africa in different dioceses in Africa so that we're connected still to the to the Anglican communion that way. For those people who, for whom that is important. To be connected to the communion, we have it. We have it clearly through concordas that we have with these different bishops overseas. I've been to Sweden back in March. I was in Sweden with Kevin Donham because there, I think I told you this last night, but those people also that have left the kind of the state church of Sweden, they wanted to begin this kind of movement over there. So what God started way back there in 2000 is really kind of bearing fruit for other people around the world. We have a movement in India, as I said last night. And uh, so who knows what God is going to keep doing with all this stuff. But nevertheless, um, so I want to kind of share with you some about the, where the mission is. We are a society. That's a different model than, let's say, the Anglican Church of Canada or the Episcopal Church of the United States. It's not a denomination. It's a society. Think Franciscan, Dominicans, Benedictines, those kinds of things that uh, have their own charism or their own anointing. And our particular anointing is to reach people for Christ primarily through church planting. That's not the only way to do it. But your offerings that you give to the mission, it helps support uh, church plants in other parts of the world, other parts of our country and your country as well. And so uh, Chuck was amazingly gifted to raise lots of money to kind of help a lot of church plants all over the country. And so now we have about somewhere between 40 and 50 churches. We have uh, uh, church plants heading out, uh, getting established in Atlanta that start within a few weeks. Chattanooga that have already started, uh, Dallas uh, for September. We're going to have another church on the east side of Dallas. Um, uh, Little Rock going to have a church, a new church in North Little Rock. And so that's the kind of thing that, that we want to support and encourage and talk about the most. That doesn't mean that's the only way to do life in the mission is you have to be a church planter or a church planting church. But it means we hold it out there and say that's kind of where our resources are going to go and that's kind of where a lot of our time is going to go. But we want to support and encourage everyone along the way. So we, need, we know we need more bishops. We have, bishop, we have Silas, Sandy Green, down, who's kind of retired, but he's still working down in San Antonio as a bishop. Chuck and Pauly's Island and me. And then T.J. right now is inactive. T.J. Johnson, he's inactive, but he and I are going to have discussions next week and kind of talk about the next steps uh, with him and see where that goes. Uh, but I just kind of wanted to give you an overview of the mission, some of its history. I probably left out some things, but some of its history, some of its values, some of its dynamics, some of the things that it's about and why it exists. 
And uh, and then uh, I wanted to read to you um, as I've taken over uh, the role of apostolic vicar, I feel totally inadequate and unprepared. Uh, because you just don't grow up thinking, I think I know what an apostolic vicar does. You just don't grow up that way. Uh, and, and then you're the senior pastor of a church that's growing and, and reaching out and doing things in Dallas and all that. And so, uh, um, but, but I told you a moment ago, I really do feel God's encouragement and God's anointing. I would rather have the anointing than all the right answers. And I pray for three things every day. Capacity, C-A-P. Capacity to do these different things. I'm a father. I'm a husband. Uh, I'm, I'm a pastor. And um, I'm a bishop. So capacity and then anointing to do these things. And purity of heart and mind. Purity in the relationships. And um, because the holiness is the greatest gift that we have to give to the world is our holiness. Our honesty and our holiness. So part of what I've been doing over the last week and this week, with, uh, I do a clergy update every Friday. I just kind of send out things to the clergy, and they're welcome to share them with you. Uh, but uh, last week I began a series of questions I'm asking to kind of get some feedback. So here was the question I asked last week. How can the mission best help you? And um, so this went out to all the clergy in the mission, including Canada and the United States, North America. And I got a variety of responses on Survey Monkey, whatever that is. What a strange name. But anyway, that, that's what it is. So I don't know who wrote these answers or responses, but I just want to read to you some of them. Here again, I'm trying to get from the people like you or your leaders like John and Silas and, and others, Edmund, whoever else is here. You know, how can we best serve you? That's why we exist. We don't exist in some kind of bureaucracy where you serve us. Because that, we, we've seen how that works, right? Uh, both in the U.S. and Canada. That's not what we're about. How can we best serve you? And you could have just said raise millions of dollars and that would, okay, we'll try. But anyway, the point is, and we do need to raise money for church planting. We want to raise money for church planting in Canada. And I, and I, and I pray that, 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 that I can do that. I'm glad to do that. Or that can help equip you to do that. And, 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 uh, because there's been millions of dollars raised over the years for church planting. Uh, through the mission. But here are some of the responses from the clergy. How can I best help you? How can the mission best help you? Here are some of them. Our Canadian Bishop Silas Ng, somebody who said this, has been a tremendous blessing to us. We very much appreciate Bishop Philip coming to Canada for the summit. Uh, the emphasis on the Celtic model has been helpful. We could use more practical help in doing more church planting in Canada. Amen. That's what I love to say. That was a great response. So they appreciate Silas. They appreciate me. Uh, they love the Celtic model. Do you know the Celtic, the, the, the Celtic model is more like that vine uh, versus the potted plant. It's a model that St. Patrick was, was part of that Celtic model way back in 4th or 5th century A.D. And, and uh, it's just going into places and building community and just worshiping God. And then as people kind of drop by and see what you're doing. Then, then they might like what you're doing and ask questions about it, as opposed to going to a place, build it, clean up everybody and say, now you come in. That's kind of not our model. Our model is very uh, kind of an open-ended model, right? You, you belong before what you believe or behave is all about. I talked about that last night. Uh, but that was one of the responses. Uh, let me see. Here's another thing. Another response. Keep the main thing the main thing. You ever heard that phrase before? We are a society of apostolic works. And the more clear we can make that proposition, the better off we will be. 
Philip does a, a great job of this. And if he could write up his pitch and send it out to the troops, it would be helpful. I'm not sure what pitch that is other than what I've said. But anyway, I'll figure something out. Uh, we need more bishops. We do. Keep the communication current and fresh. We want to do that as well. So, in fact, I talked to this uh, lady who's, um, um, she owns an advertising agency in Dallas. She goes to our church and I asked her about the kind of whatever strategy we have in the mission. And she, I think, I might have said this to you last night. She said, the best thing you can do, Philip, is write a book. Because you go to places, you can pass out the book, and the book can kind of give you the history of the church planting in Dallas and the Anglican mission, what it's about. And I never thought about writing a book in my life. I haven't read too many. But anyway, the, I mean, I said I had, but I mean, I've read some books. But anyway, I come here, and then all of a sudden, Ed's got a book, and, and somebody else, John's got a book. And I thought, well, maybe I can do all this. I don't know. Anyway. Um. Here's another response. I'm not going to read all of them to you, but um, know me where possible, more face to face connection. Take interest in what I'm doing and create opportunities for sharing and learning. Help me to know if what I'm doing is worthwhile. I'm telling you that this gets to the guts of a lot of the issues and the angst that pastors feel is what I'm doing worthwhile. We can use all the pious language, and I, I understand all that, and it's good language. But sometimes, deep down, you got to understand that there's so much in the culture against what we do. Is what I'm doing worthwhile? Uh, I, we're not growing a lot. We don't have a lot of visitors. We tried Alpha, and it didn't work, or whatever. But it, it has to kind of do with the worthiness, and people just need to be encouraged. Well, I love to do that. And so I love this idea of face-to-face and know me and all that kind of thing. Now, you know, there's 150 clergy, and I can't know them all that well. But, but nevertheless, we can have that kind of uh, atmosphere, that tone and direction. Um, uh, let me see. Let me, it goes on to say, keep going in this direction, and uh, you're doing a great job given all the circumstances and all those kinds of things. Um, so those are some of the responses. Oh, here's the last one, response. Clear operating policies and procedures for the local level, including compensation guidelines, job descriptions for clergy and church vestries, performance review, church goal setting and strategy, on-site visits a couple of times a year, articulation of career paths for clergy. That's a lot of stuff there. But uh, the, uh, uh, and I don't know if I can do all that, but nevertheless, that's something to pay attention to. All I'm trying to do is get feedback from the people. How can we best serve you? So my question for this week that goes out tomorrow to the clergy is this question. Um, what are the clearest values, value or values that the mission represents right now? What are the clearest understanding of the values or the value that the mission represents right now? In other words, what are we about that, that you understand that's really clear? And so I'll send that out, kind of get responses from that. I'll do it again next week. I'll have another question next week, another question a week after that, another question a week after that. Then we'll have a clergy retreat where your clergy and clergy from the United States will all gather together down in Tampa, Florida. And I'll have a time to kind of, that'll help inform some of what I'm saying and doing. All right, you probably didn't want to hear about all that, but nevertheless, that's kind of, uh, that's where I am, that's what I'm doing, that's what we're about. It all has to do with Luke chapter 9, go out and, uh, you know, don't let the dead bury their own dead. They, you know, you've got, don't, get your hand to the plow and look ahead so that, you know, we all have a certain season of life to live. We want to live it to our very best and we want to be able to kind of give St. Peter a high five as we go through the gates of heaven and uh, say we, we gave it our all. And you people are part of a church planting organization. 
And uh, doesn't mean that you all necessarily have to be doing that all the time, but, but that, that's kind of something that's already being pushed out there so that we can uh, move forward for God's kingdom in that way. Okay, I want to stop now and just uh, have a chance for questions or thoughts or insights or pushback or, or attaboys or whatever you might have in your heart or mind as you heard some of this this morning. Or maybe you want more clarity about something. Or... Yes, sir. Uh, ACNA, the, the province. Yeah, it's doing ACNA, uh, Anglican Church of North America, and it has a new archbishop that, uh, his investiture is next week, a guy named Foley Beach, who I've gotten to know pretty well. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they have a lot of our churches, and then they have some other churches, and so they're, they're doing well. They, uh, some, but not, that's not their main thing. But for some people, it's very important, but it's not the main thing for everybody. And uh, they have 50 bishops. And, yeah, and like one bishop reached five churches almost. But it, but the uh, uh, so the, the, there's a, some of the issues they're going to have to deal with is the fact that all 50 bishops aren't on the same page about everything. Some of them are very much for women's ordination. Some of them are, are not for that. And some of them are really about expanding the kingdom in any way we can. And some are more high church. Let's keep it like this. So they got some things they got to do, some challenges for them to, to work through. But we want to we want to partner with them in a way that we can. See, missionary societies are always part of something like a like a province somewhere. And right now we're part of all these other different places in, in, in Africa. But there may be a day where we'll have kind of concordance with people in, in the ACNA. So we'll just kind of pray, pray through that and see what happens. Other questions, thoughts, insights? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I really appreciate your prayers, uh, both on the local level, but also for, and when I say Anglican Mission, I'm including ACIC, the Anglican coalition in canada which is going to have a name change here in a couple of days or weeks called the Anglican, uh, the canadian mission or something like that huh A-M-K-N-A. Anglican mission canada so uh so you'll have your own separate thing but we're all part of the same ideas of doing things and and there's lots of people who who are wanting to kind of come back into the mission because they really do like the clarity and the low maintenance lightweight low maintenance uh, uh, go out there and get them kind of thing. Don't need a lot of permission. Just just go. And then as we plan up churches, some of them will, will want to join and be part of something like Act, and that's great. And some will want to stay in the mission, and that's great as well. But thanks for that. I, I hope was this helpful. I hope it wasn't too boring. I, I you know yes. Yeah. They don't really see that. So what are some of the struggles you've seen as we've been transitioning and uh, how are some ways you've been transitioning through that? That's a very good question. Who's your father? Do you have um, he put you up to that? Uh, no, that's a very good question. So the question was, how do you see the transition taking place in into this new, new kind of missionary deal? Because 
Honestly, the way it was in the States, I imagine the way it was here, it was just the way we've always done things. And we just didn't, uh, we just didn't have that much energy to, to, to change things very much. And, and yet the theology was, was going further and further away from Scripture, so there wasn't the motivation to begin with. So it all has to do with theology and the motivation that given to us in Scripture about the kind of God that we worship. And the fact that, that uh, uh, people weren't just coming to church just because you opened up the doors anymore. That's stopped 50 years ago. And so, uh, uh, so the, the mindset that began to change, at least in the missionary movements that we're talking about, begins with the, with the clergy. It begins with the leadership of the churches. And then the people, it's kind of a, um, sometimes it's like pushing water uphill. You know, you just kind of have to keep talking about mission and, and keep talking about the, the, the kind of God that we worship. And when the Holy Spirit begins to kind of move in our hearts, you just want to tell other people about it. And it's all kinds of creative ways through the arts and through music and through drama and through preaching and through teaching and through, oh, do y'all have pub ministries here where, you know, the theology on tap, that kind of stuff. We go and talk about uh, theology and, and, and you gather group people together. And there's some really gifted speakers that can do this. And. And, uh, you know, everybody has a beer, a pint of beer or something like that. And they hear about God. All kinds of creative ways. And then for the leadership of the churches, lay leadership and ordained leadership, they need to be on the same page. So uh, you want to begin the, lay, the type of lay leadership that will, uh, uh, that will encourage the same kind of reaching out and all that kind of thing. As well as pastoral care and good teaching, youth groups, children's ministry. You know, you still need all those kinds of things. Um, but with a mindset of thinking out there beyond the walls because people aren't just going to come in anymore. People are still hungry. Listen, people are still as spiritual as they've ever been. They just don't know where to go get it. And so they're going to go get fast food stuff when we have the great feast and the great banquet. So the hunger is still there. It really is. And people still have pastoral crises. And there's still tons of ways to reach people when they go through a death in a family or a loss or a financial breakdown or or just a, a, a own kind of internal breakdown or whatever like that to hear good news that they're loved by a loving God. Other questions? Yes, sir, ma'am. Right. When we started All Saints in Dallas, we started with 15, 17 people aged 55 and older. Uh, and including me. So that was the, that's where we started with it. But, but we knew we wanted to reach, obviously, younger people. Here's the interesting thing. We didn't do a single program to reach young people. Uh, but what we did do is when young people did come, we got them involved. Stand them up front to welcome people or to be greeters. We got them involved in the life of the church. And so these young people who came from very good churches, a lot of them, uh, they were, uh, uh, it, it was because we were smaller, uh, we could uh, incorporate them easier. I knew their names, I knew their wife's names, their girlfriend's names, their kids' names, their dogs' names, all that kind of thing. And, and so there was that sense of a relational connectivity. And I think, at least that's been for me, other people really have a powerful ministry of this or that. Mine is more the relational connection. And uh, Claudia enjoys that. I enjoy that. That has set the tone and direction for the church. Now our church is made up. Let's say we have 400 plus on a Sunday. Uh, half of them are under age 35. And they just and, and, and more are coming all the time because I think they're looking for something authentic and transparent. 
And I think that they're finding they never have heard about the Holy Spirit. So good teaching about the Holy Spirit is important. And then the liturgy. There's something about that taking communion together on their knees. We do it on our knees. And and not that you have to do it that way. I'm not saying that. But so I know Atlanta, Chattanooga. Uh, there's a church in, in Atlanta. It was a vineyard church that came into the Anglican mission about five years ago. They have 1,300 people on Sunday morning. Most of them are under 40, under 35. They're planting a new church with 200 people uh, in a few weeks. Uh, so, yeah, young people are responding. And, and I can only speak from my experience why they respond. And it's not because we out-program other churches or out-preach other churches or outdo other churches. We're just being honest and, and uh, self-possessed. And that's, we know who we are. And we want to get that out there, and we want to include the people in ways like greeters, ushers, lay readers, all that kind of thing. Uh, that uh, is just part of our church structure, and get them. So you don't have to have been to church 30 years before you can serve on the altar guild, or you don't have to be the right family name before you can be involved uh, in the leadership of the church, something like that. So that's that's how church plans can really help. There's another question over here somewhere. I thought, but yeah. This question was part of it, but just to young people, and I think of my own family and, and all of their friends, none of them go to church. And yeah. just, uh, nothing to be proud of, but I've, it seems to be a malaise across the, certainly in British Columbia, where there's quite a bit of affluence. Right. Uh, young people do not go to church. A- affluenza <laughs> can have a huge detrimental effect. Um, so can education, <laughs> as you talked about yesterday. But um, and, you know, uh, it's just it's, it's hard, hard soil. It really is both by their parents, maybe and by, by the kids. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Not for not for <laughs> not not. Hey, man, let's pray. Let's give, give prayer a hand. Prayer, 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 not trying to be snazzy, not trying to be. There's other churches that do that. Maybe you all do that, but we're not real snazzy. Uh, like I say, we're not very clever. We are moderately good looking, but we're not very clever. Um, and, uh, and, and and just an, an attitude of, of, of openness and transparency in, in my. Now, I'm sure Ed and Silas could say and, and Archbishop and Edmund could give you some other answer to that on the young people. But it begins with prayer. And then it just begins with they're, they're still hungry in marriages and to make marriages work or to make kids work or when they get into parenting or education, those kinds of things. So just kind of being ready for when that drops and you can have a chance to kind of speak into that. So uh, there's no one silver bullet for the law, but but it's, it's, you know, throughout history, we've had kind of a waxing and waning of that whole what about the young people kind of thing. But you do need to have it there in the forefront of your prayers and thoughts. Okay? Anybody else? Um, let's close in prayer right now. We've, we've had a, a great time of worship and, and uh, scripture. And if you have any other questions, you know, I'm, I'm here throughout the day. And then tomorrow I leave some point uh, to get back. Let me tell you what I'm getting back for. And let me ask your prayers for this. Because right now there's a lot of spiritual warfare in, in, in our church. Just this week, just stuff happening, kind of breaking down and things like that. Um, we had the Vicar Bad Dad two weeks ago, and that was pretty incredible. Uh, we've had some just some powerful worship services on Sunday, and so God's doing some things. And then this Saturday, we have a guy coming in, a guy named Christopher West. He is a Catholic layman, 
who uh, does this incredible talk on the theology of the body. I may have mentioned some about that last night, but how the body proclaims the gospel. And he does it through song. He does it through our culture. And look at, look at the fast food our culture offers uh, versus the desires that God has put in us. And his whole idea is, is a talk about that. And, and it, it's, a, um, it's a new way of understanding the gospel. It's a new way of, as I said last night, Pope John Paul II did all these talks. This guy brought the hay down where you could get to it and does it in a very creative, entertaining kind of way. And, uh, but the devil doesn't like it. And uh, here we are right in the middle of the gay section of Dallas, and we're talking about theology of the body <laughs> and, and God's desire for our bodies and God's desire for the longing of our hearts. And he uses this illustration. Did I mention this last night about Hugh Hefner? No. Okay, so he uses this illustration. Uh, if, if you take a, a piece of paper, and it's the body, for example, and uh, you crumple it up, you throw it away, and that's the way the church uh, before the 50s just kind of looked at uh, sexuality or looked at marriage. You know, it was just wrong, suppress your desires and, and all that kind of stuff. Hugh Hefner takes that thing out of the trash can and says, no, look at this. This is all, and that's all he said was look at it and buy my Playboys and all that kind of thing. Pope John Paul II pulls it out and says, look at this, at how this reveals God. That God, if, if the language of the Jews is Hebrew and the language of the Muslims is Arabic, the language for the Christian is the body. Because of the incarnation. How we're made. Uh, and, and, and our fruitfulness that we're called to be. And so this is going to be a tremendous workshop, or not a seminar on Saturday. And there's lots of stuff kind of going around the office. So uh, just about, you know, things that aren't working right and things that are kind of breaking down and communication, all that kind of thing. And I think it's because uh, because of this. It's really powerful gospel message kind of stuff that that you're going to hear more and more about because I think it's going to really just Christianity Today is written about. So evangelicals are all over it as well as the Catholics. And and uh, it's just a powerful presentation of what God is doing. So would someone just pray for that right now uh, for all saints and this weekend and then I'll close us all in prayer. Father, we bless you for uh, your, your lordship. We thank you that the battle is already won. We thank you that you have defeated evil. And we just declare that victory over all saints right now. We declare um, your kingdom over that whole city, but over that church and over the community that are there. And uh, we speak blessing over them. We speak light over them. We speak uh, the favor of God over them. And we thank you, Father, that you are able to do exceedingly more uh, than we can imagine or they could imagine. And so we, we just speak to all that is of mischief, all that is of uh, mm-hmm. violence that is not thank of your you, kingdom. Thank we you, command Lord. it to step back in thank the name you, of Jesus. Jesus. Thank we you, command Lord. it to be still in the name of Jesus. We declare to it that we're not intimidated. We're not even going to pay much attention to it. We're just going to raise up the, the cross you, of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the presence of Jesus. And we pray just enormous anointing over that gathering on Saturday. And we pray a 
deep and powerful anointing over Philip and his team as they as they minister there. You, and we just pray, Father, that that which was meant for evil will be used for good. And so we bless you, uh, that time and uh, this season you, that uh, all that was intended to bring it down will actually be used to raise up Thank more you, than Thank you, Lord God. Lord God, thank you for this group of people. Thank you for this morning, the worship and and the, the scriptures and this explanation and questions. Let these people know that filled with the Holy Spirit, growing in holiness, reaching out in love, living in your presence. That you are moving your kingdom and pushing back the darkness right now in this holy place and the places where these people go back after this week is over. That we will be steadfast and persevere in our faith. Put our hands to the plow and don't look back. Thank you for the structure that you have raised up called the Anglican Mission and the mission here in Canada. And thank you for the covering that gives. We pray for the resources, not at the top, but the resources here on the ground level. Financial resources. Pour open, Lord, the storehouses. Spiritual resources. Pour open the holiness. Emotional resources. Pour open the healing. Physical resources, Lord. Pour, pour, uh, pour forth the people. And those people that the man asked about in British Columbia, the young people who don't know you, they're infected with affluenza. We pray for their healing. And we pray, Father, uh, we pray for them and pray for all the young people in British Columbia. And we pray, Father, for a great outpouring of your spirit and a great hunger of a need that they have to know you. Ah, We love you, Lord. Please stand. Let's all stand. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us. Adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Cry, the Lord, for You alone are worthy. For You alone are worthy. about to eat we bless you for the provision help us to eat it responsibly we thank you father for the people that have prepared it and for this church how they come around and and there's been such graceful hosts and hostesses so bless the food to our use and those to your service in christ's name amen, amen. thank you